The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 2, 13-17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are turning an important corner in our study of the book of 1 Peter. For the most part, everything we have studied so far has been all about what God has done for us through Jesus. We've learned all kinds of amazing indicatives, things that God has done without our involvement for us, for our good, caused us to be born again, all these different things. Well, what's happening now is we're turning this corner and Peter is starting to lay out some of the implications of those indicatives or some of the imperatives that come along. So it's like this, God has done this. And now God says, because I have done this, this is how you respond, right? Because God has done this. Now you respond this way. And we are going to see over the next few weeks that Peter is going to use this, these words right here. We see it in our first The first two words of our text this morning, chapter 2, verses um, 13. And if you, there's Bibles in the, the, we got little things that hang over the seats now, so you can grab a Bible, pull it out, follow along with us. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. The first two words there are be subject, okay? He's going to tell us be subject means to submit yourself to. Now, I know you're in America. Most of us are in here probably Americans, right? And so as soon as you use the word submit, you know, we get tingles on our skin and hair starts standing up in the back of our neck sometimes. We don't really like this idea of being subject to or being under somebody's authority. But over these next sections and over these next few weeks, we're going to study. Peter's going to use this word over and over and over. And he's going to tell us to submit ourselves to our government, to management at work or our bosses, to our spouse. He's going to tell us to submit ourselves to our Christian brothers and sisters. He's going to tell us to submit ourselves to our pastors and elders. Basically, Peter's going to be teaching us that Christians are people who live under authority. They are not anarchists. They live under authority. They submit to authority. And so that's how he starts out his text today. Verse 13, let's jump into it right away. Peter says, be subject to your, or I'm sorry, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Now, let's just stop right there. Today, we are going to see how our new identity that God has given us, this identity as his children, changes our posture towards those in authority over us. Specifically today, changes our posture towards those, towards the government. And though Peter specifies our governmental leaders, he also more broadly speaks to what he calls, 
quote, every human institution, every human institution. He's speaking of the family. He's speaking of the business. He's speaking of governments. He's speaking of civic organizations. He's thinking of schools. Every human institution, everything we build that's got some kind of leadership structure, he's going to teach us how to live under it, how to submit to it. And Peter is telling us specifically here how Christians are supposed to live in their city, how we're supposed to live in our city. And what we're going to learn is that we're called to be a sacred city, a city within our cities, a group of people who live for the city, who serve the city, who live to bless the city and seek its peace and welfare. We aren't just people here to use the city, right? Maybe work in the city, come to eat in the city, and then live out somewhere else. Now look what Peter says as they continue to move on here. He says, or to governors, verse 14, as sent by him, sent by God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now this is Peter's kind of, Everybody, you know, if I came to your house and I went to your kitchen and I asked where your batteries were, more than likely you're going to pull out what we call the junk drawer, right? The drawer that's got a little bit of everything in it. Now, this is Peter's kind of junk drawer term here, okay? It's all encompassing. And what he's saying is that the government was sent by God to do two things, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In its most simplistic form, that's what our government, that's what our human institutions are meant to do, right? Restrain evil and promote good. Now, it's interesting, scholar Edmund Clowney says this, Peter's description of the function of government serves indirectly to limit his command to be in subject to them. So what he's saying, we submit to our leaders, we submit to our government as our government promotes the good and restrains the evil, right? If we flip, if they, if our government flips that around as Christians, we have a higher authority and that is God. And then we become some, maybe some kind of submersive, subversive minority within our culture. And we live in a different way. This can, the extreme example of this is in uh, World War II with Nazi Germany and, um, and, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor, a scholar, and eventually becomes a spy and it becomes a, a, a part of trying to assassinate Hitler because he realized that Hitler, what Hitler was trying to do. And so he knew his Christian response was not to submit to Hitler, but was to try to overthrow Hitler. And so... Our job as Christians is to submit to authority, submit to our government as our government promotes the good and tries to restrain evil. Now let's keep moving on here. I want to get into something here. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now what he's talking about, we already we learned about this last week, is there's, Christians live differently in the world and therefore they're going to be mocked. They're going to be pointed at. They're going to be uh, kind of marginalized. 
And Peter's saying, your conduct, the way you live your life, should be done in such a good way that people, though they despise you, though they want to make fun of you, they're actually confronted with just the goodness of your very life. All right? Now let's keep reading. I'm, I, I want to get to this next point. Live as people who are free. Now this verse captured me this week. I, I, I wanted to preach more on like kind of the Christians of like politics and exile or, or understanding the government and exile. But this verse captured me this week. It says this, live as people who are free, comma here, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. Well, that's interesting. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. How could freedom, how could our freedom lead us into evil? Right? We love freedom. Freedom's a good thing. How does freedom actually lead us into something that's evil? Well, what Peter says here is Christians, they are free, but Peter tells us our freedom isn't to be used for sin. It's It isn't to be used for our own self-interest. We are ultimately, look what he says, living, but living as servants of God. So Christians are free, but they're free to serve. They use their freedom to serve others. Now what's, what's going on here? Peter is teaching these first century Christians how to live, listen, as free people, in the midst of a culture that has a way of enslaving people, has a way of teaching people how to use their freedom that actually leads them into slavery. Now, anytime I hear the word freedom or to be free, think of being free lately, I naturally think of the movie Frozen. Okay? For at least a year of my life, I heard the words of Princess Elsa's song, Let It Go, ring out through the walls of my house. It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. (laughs) Let it go. Now, this song is supposed to be about Princess Elsa finally embracing who she really is and not living as the person everyone else expects her to be. It's the common cultural narrative of today that the real you is super special and found somewhere deep down inside. And if you find that person and you let them out, you will finally find happiness. At its baseline, it is basically the worship of the self. It really is a rejection of all forms of authority except the self. This worldview, and it is the prevalent worldview of our day and age, says happiness is found within. And what we really need is the freedom to discover or create our own identities. We need the freedom to just let it go. Let the inner you roam free. Then you'll finally be happy. We don't need a patriarchal society to tell us who we're meant to be. 
right? We don't want you to tell us anything about us. We want to create our own self. You can't even tell me, and doctor and science can't even tell me if I'm a male or if I'm a female. We want the desire to choose for ourselves who we are. We're building our own identities. But interestingly, what Elsa discovers is that once she lets it go, she freezes the town, creates an ice castle, nearly kills her sister, and in her own words, creates a kingdom of isolation. And it looks like I'm the queen. So this is actually quite profound. By giving full vent to her freedoms, she has actually created her own kingdom of isolation. What she thought was going to bring her freedom and joy, finding her true self, actually ended up enslaving her and trapping her and isolating her from those closest to her. Now, here's the, here's the, the thought that I had this week. She became a slave to her freedom. Now, interesting, this is a universal condition. This is a universal reality that the Bible speaks about. And it goes like this. You were created to find your identity outside of yourself through your relation with God. You were made in his image to know him, to love him, and to worship him. He's the other side of your puzzle piece. He's what you were made for, and your greatest happiness is going to be found in your communion with God. We were not created to build our own identities or somehow find them within. In fact, one definition of sin is trying to build your identity on anything other than God. Anytime you try to build your identity, that's who you are, where you find meaning, on anything other than God, you will become trapped by it. You will be enslaved by it. It's, a, it's an absolute universal reality. Bob Dylan sang about this in his song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. He says over and over in this song, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black or white, where you come from, that everyone, no matter who you are, serves someone or something. We're all slaves to something. And the three most common ways I think people in our culture today become slaves to their freedom is through their performance, their possessions, and their reputations. You could say performance, I am what I do. Possessions, I am what I have. Or I am what people say that I am. Slave to your reputation. And the identity-building scheme of I am what I do, I become a slave to my work. I become a slave to my accomplishments. Some years back, Madonna was quoted in Vanity Fair, and she says this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, she says, I still have to prove I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. She feels normal, 
So what does she have to do? She has to put out another album. She has to conquer another thing. She's, she's finding her identity in what she does. Or as Rocky famously said it, as he's preparing to fight Apollo Creed, all I want to do is go the distance. So I'll know I'm, just, I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. If I am what I do, I become infatuated with trying to prove my worth through my accomplishments. My hope is always on the other side of the next achievement that will tell me I'm an interesting person. I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. And I am what I have. This is really easy. We become a slave to our possessions. We can see this more than likely by looking at your credit card debt. We define ourselves by what we have. I'm an Apple person. I'm, an, I'm not an Apple person, right? That one doesn't really work well. That's, no, I'm just not going to go there, right? I'm, I, dr- I drive this kind of vehicle. I, drive, I live in this neighborhood, right? I went to this school. I am what I have. We're slave to the next thing. This is why Apple can drop a new $1,000 phone and everybody can go, it's $1,000 and just wait next, just wait, and just, just wait and see what happens next week. Everybody's still gonna buy it. It's still gonna be, why? Once you're an Apple person, once you go Apple, you never go back. That's why, that's why, that's why their symbol is, a, is an apple with a bite out of it. Where'd you get that from? Right? Hook. Hooked in. Right? Or lastly, I am what people say that I am. And this one is so hard. You live your life like a mirror. Like you're a mirror and every person that you go up to, you see this reflection of yourself and you try to become who you think they want you to be. And your attitude, your whole soul just is on a roller coaster determined by other people's opinions of you. Now ultimately these three things is building our own identity it leads to, if things are going well and you're killing it in the business sector or you're killing it at home or you're killing it in school and you're accomplishing, it leads to great pride. Like when Madonna puts out an album and it goes, it used to go well, and she does it, it oh, you feel special, I feel so great. But then that starts to wear off and what happens? Despair and anxiety begins to set in when things are not going well. Some of us, you, you feel this even with social media. You, you haven't had a, a, a good you know, uptick in likes in a while, and so you need to post a selfie. You, know, you need to post something. You know, many of us, you post something a little revealing. If you post something a little revealing, I'll get more likes, and that'll let me feel good about myself. See, in this I am what I do, or I am what I have, or I am what others say that I am, You'll never find peace. You'll never find rest. And it's an absolute exhausting way to live. Dr. Elaine Ehrenberg, in his book, The Weariness of Self, talks about why anxiety and depression is higher today than it has ever been. It's, I'm not gonna get into that right now. He says this, depression is on the rise today. Quote, because of an increased because of increased feelings of inadequacy arising listen from a social context in which success is attributed to 
and expected of the autonomous individual. In a nutshell, Dr. Ehrenberg is saying, if my identity is all up to me, if I am responsible to create the real me or find the real me or live up to the real me, it puts an almost impossible amount of pressure on a person and it easily leads to increased feelings of anxiety and depression. Right? Our parents didn't know any better, right? When our parents growing up and they're telling you what, you can be anything you want to be. Do you realize how much pressure that is? And it's also a lie, right? Up until like fourth grade, I kind of believed it. And I tried to, you know, I played bitty basketball, right? And I realized, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to get the ball from the free throw line to that hoop up there. I'm wrestling instead. I can grab people then, right? My own size, right? You can't be anything that you want to be. And and in previous generations where you grew up, in kind of a patriarchal society, you grew up and you said, what am I going to be? You didn't have to ask that question. Dad was a farmer, you're a farmer. Dad was a blacksmith, you're a blacksmith. Dad went to law school, you're probably going to go to law school. You didn't have the pressure to make that decision. And now we're telling our kids, you can be anything you want to be. And that puts pressure on us because what is my kid? Is my kid a piano player? Is he a guitar player? Is he a drummer? Is he a poet? Is he an athlete? Oh my goodness, I better put him in everything to see what he really is. Too much pressure. Our souls aren't built for that type of anxiety. And then the the anxiety that we come up in that, that milieu, that cultural social construct, and we believe it's up to us to figure out who we are and what we're called to do and what we're called to be. Too much pressure. And so inevitably, if it's all up to us, we crumble under the weight of it, right? And depression and anxiety sets in. So what are we to do? Our entire society is obsessed with this right now. We are enslaved to our freedoms. We're enslaved to our sports. We're enslaved to alcohol. We're enslaved to coffee. We're enslaved to working out. We're enslaved to shopping. We're enslaved to Netflix. We're enslaved to Facebook. Well, this idea is not new. Peter calls these kind of inner compulsions to build our identity on something other than God. In the previous verses, he called them the passions of the flesh. The passions, the over-desires. Everything worth doing is worth overdoing, right? And so we become addicts. We become slaves to things. And Peter says, simply, those who do not worship God are slaves to their passions. They're slaves to their freedoms. Slaves to their desires. Slaves to their self-made identities. Slaves to their looks. Slaves to their political parties. Slaves to their careers. Slaves to their kids. Slaves to their feelings and even slaves to their phones. But look what he says about those who have a relationship with God. Look at verse 15 again. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now listen, that word, 
servants has been translated servants because us in you know, North America, when we hear the word slave, we think what happened in our culture, in our society a couple hundred years back. But the word there is actually dolos, which means slave. He says, you're free slaves of God. Now that, that's a paradox I don't want you to miss. In one sentence, Peter puts the entire reality of the Christian life. He says this, live freely as slaves of God. In other words, true freedom is only found as I bind myself to the one I was made for, God. I can only really let it go when I know that the one who never lets anything go has me. My identity is secure in him. Then I can actually let it go. Now, this is important, and I don't want us to miss it. Peter is saying that Christians are free in a way that non-Christians are not. What does he mean by this? Simply this. In verse 24, we'll tell us later. We're not going to get to it. We're talking about that next week. But verse 24 tells us this. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that's on the cross that we might, listen, die to sin and live to righteousness. Let me say it like this. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Listen, here. Jesus built our identity for us. Jesus lived the life that was perfect and he offers that life to us. We can't achieve that life. None of us can live that life. None of us could ever live up to that standard, but we can this, we can receive it. We can't achieve it. We can receive it by faith. We can say, Jesus, I see your superior life. I see your beauty. I can see the perfection with which you live. I see your death. I see your resurrection. And I want in on that. I want in on that. Peter says, of course, it's an all or nothing kind of deal. He says, we give up being slaves to our own freedoms and we become slaves of God. And when we do that by faith, by actively trusting in Jesus, we are, this is, here's the word, set free from sin. He purchased us. He buys us with the precious blood of Christ. We are now one of his children, but we're also slaves, servants of God. We no longer base our identities on what we have or what we've done or what we're going to do, but what Jesus has already done for us. I want you to think about this. That means Christians, we don't need the approval of others because Jesus has already earned for us the approval of God. God looks at you and loves you and puts a stamp of approval on you. He is not asking you to prove yourself to him. Jesus has already proved you to the Father. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We are free. We have nothing left to prove. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Christians no longer look to ourself for our worth and our value. Our identities are not up to us to create or to maintain. 
Instead, we find them in Christ, outside of ourself and above all reproach. See, if your identity is based in your achievement, all it takes is one mistake for that to come crashing down. Now, a clear example of this horrible scandal that came out in the last couple of weeks in Hollywood, right? It's a Harvey Weinstein thing. This guy who Meryl Streep, an awards ceremony, called him a god. Called him a god. And now the magazine's, what is it? Monster. Predator. See, if your identities are built on your works, they can be gone. You can go from a god to a monster in one week. In one week's time. But if your identity is based outside of yourself in Jesus Christ, who's the perfect human being, he's absolutely loved by God, he's paid the price of all your sins, he's secured for you a heavenly home, he's given you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, and he says, when you put your faith in me, I will come live inside of you. Your identity is absolutely secure and nothing and no one can shake it. And what this does as we believe it, as we take it into our minds and we meditate on it and we think about it. See, this, this does take work, guys. This isn't just something that you just pray and it just happens. This is, this, you have to think about the gospel. You have to think about these implications and bring them into your mind. And that's how your mind gets transformed. And as your mind gets transformed, your desires in your heart gets transformed. Your loves get transformed. And that changes the way that we live in our city. Think about this. If you know yourself to be loved, you don't have to prove anything. You know yourself to be forgiven. You don't have to justify yourself. You can freely say, you know what? I sinned there, right? That was wrong for me to do. My identity is in Christ, so I repent to you. Will you forgive me? Right? And then the other thing, you can be a servant of God. You realize when you're worshiping the idol of yourself, you can't serve anyone? Your identity is based in your achievements. It's really almost impossible to give up those achievements to serve somebody else. That's why everybody wants to love the poor. Everybody wants to help the poor. Everybody wants a more just city, a more beautiful city, a more kind city, a more equitable city. But if you look at people's schedule, nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. Why? Because we're worshiping the idol of the self. I want to be known as a good person. I want to be known as a charitable person. I want to be known as a kind person, but it's not going to make its way into my schedule. Why? Because I'm worshiping the idol of myself. I'm building my own identity. I can't get off this treadmill. If I get off this treadmill, I get anxious and depressed. So I have to stay on social media. So I have to stay you know, working too many hours. So I have to stay obsessed with my kids. If I get off the treadmill, I feel anxious and, and depressed. What's well, interesting. When you put your identity in Christ, you have nothing to prove. You're free to be nobody. You're free to be an ordinary Joe or an ordinary Jane. And you know what? You're free to serve. You're free to be a servant of God. I want you to think about this. How does, how does the gospel free us to serve others? Now listen, churches can try to force you to serve, right? When I was a teenager, I did something really dumb. 
I blew up a mailbox. I got forced community service. I had to go down to the soup kitchen and serve what I was not serving. I was hiding, trying to find, I didn't want to do any work, so I'd just walk around this big building and kind of look at these, you know, like kind of look, think of myself as, you know, better off than these people, or more, a wiser, better person than these per- people. I couldn't actually serve them because I had a proud, arrogant heart. But this is what the gospel does. I want you to think about this. Jesus saved us by serving us. He came as a servant and washed his disciples' feet. Peter, the one writing this, was the one go, don't, don't wash my feet. Don't serve me. Never, Lord. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you're not one of mine. If I don't serve you, you're not one of mine. And Peter lets, humbly lets Jesus wash his feet. And then Jesus serves us by ultimately laying down this one and only life he's got, lays it down for us at the cross. And now listen, when you believe that, that Jesus died for you, Jesus came to serve you, when you take that into yourself, it changes you. It changes our posture toward ourself, toward God, and toward others. I got nothing to prove. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm just like everybody else. Now, what does that look like? Here's the big thing. I mean, the, Peter's full of junk drawer terms. The other one is like, how do you live in the city? You do good. That's what he says in verse 15. Do good, right? He's like, do we really need to get detail about this? Be good, right? That's what he's telling him. But, but the interesting is, how do we do that? What does that look like? I think Peter gives us four big handles or four marks of a free servant. Somebody who has the freedom, the inner freedom to be a servant of God. And look at these four marks. Verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God honor the emperor. Now this is just, if you get down and start studying this, this is, this is fascinating. Okay. Honor everyone. A Christian is one of the only people on planet earth that can actually honor everyone. Why? Because we have the doctrine of creation that first says that we were made imago Dei. Every single human being is made in the image of God with dignity, value, and worth, right? We're capable, excuse me, we're capable of doing brilliant things, amazing, good, wonderful things. Every human being has that capability, but also every human being is tainted by sin and has had the results of the fall. And so we're capable of great evil as well. And when Peter says, honor everyone, he's saying every person. Now, Every person is special. Now, I want you to think about this. I know you know some people are special, right? Your kids, your friends, your political party. But how do you treat those on the opposite side? Right? You, do you demonize those who disagree with you? They're not just wrong, they're evil. They're not just misguided or ignorant. They want to destroy our country. 
when you have, when you talk about issues of race, income inequality, police injustice? Do you look at, at your side in a positive light and the other side, do you demonize? You're not living as a Christian. You're not honoring everyone. Peter says to Christians, this is what's going to set you apart in your city. You honor everyone. You don't give the poor, right? You don't kind of give the side eye to the poor and then you go invite the rich. You don't kind of snuggle up with your race of people, your ethnicity of people, and then kind of diss the other race. You honor everyone. This, listen, I'm going to tell you, you sh- if you're a Christian, you should be very politically confused. If you can go with a clear conscience and vote one side of the party, you probably don't know the issues very well. Honor everyone. Christians honor everyone. Secondly, he says this, uses a different word. He says, honor everyone, hold them in high esteem, hold them high value, cherish them. This means people in the womb. We honor those in the womb. Right? We honor those in nursing homes and retirement communities. Right? Your identity is not in what you can do. That's where they, this idolatry you know, of abortion, this, this, this where abortion comes from, is they can't do anything. They're not productive yet. Or in the nursing, we should let them, we should have assisted suicide. No, no, no. Your identity is not what you can do. It's not in what you can produce for society. You are valuable because you're made in the image of God. Christians honor everyone. Secondly, love the brotherhood. And this word is, it's a form of agape. Many of you probably have heard of agape. It's a love that's just not feelings and fuzzies. It's action. It's love in action. Peter's saying, listen, honor everyone but your church family should be priority number one in your life. Your church family, honor them or love them, agape, work out, love them by serving them, doing good things for them, with them, on mission with them. means literally to show love. This is what Christian, we prioritize the Christian family. We prioritize the church. They're gonna know us by our love for one another. Nobody's going to know us by our warm fuzzies, by our loving actions toward other Christians. Third, and this one just says this. So honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Now, we don't like the word fear. Um, unless you're a dad, right? If you're a dad, you probably do like the word fear. Like I want my kids to fear me in a little bit. And I also want to be able to like scare them when I want to scare them right? A dad's voice comes out. He's really serious now. Like we can push him, push him. Dad voice. Oh, we're good. Right? Like dad voice is meant to bring the appropriate fear of dad into the room. Right? Or the, or the old, you talking to my wife that way? He's serious. Right? Like that's one of my favorite lines. The kids know to get it in line when I say that. Now listen, this fear God, this brings together all kinds of things. Isaiah's view of God, this holy, holy, holy. Anytime an angel shows up, people fall prostrate. They worship God. He's greater than we are. It's like being trying, immediately being in the presence of the sun. 
what it's like to be in the presence of God, even greater than that, right? So there's honor, there's this awe, this power, this wonder. But this is what he's saying. I want you to see this. Couched in an argument for why we should submit to the government, he says this, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, only worship God. Only God has your ultimate allegiance. Now this fits right into this identity language. If you fear your kids, you'll never honor your kids because you'll placate them. They can throw a temper tantrum and you, you're nervous about what other people are thinking about the temper tantrum. And oh, they probably think I'm a bad mom. So here's a sucker. Here's whatever you wanted. Teaching our kid, disobeying mom, throwing a temper tantrum, which dishonors God, you will get what you want. See, we're fearing our children and we can't honor our children because of it. Peter says, fear God only. Fear God only, honor everyone else. Means no one's opinion in my life or your life is higher than God's. What matters to me is what God says about me, not what you say about me. What matters to me is what God tells me how to live my life, not how the culture tells me how to live my life. Fear nothing but God. And then lastly, this one just... He says, he like comes, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You know what that means? The emperor gets the same allegiance as everybody else. This was in a time where people worshiped Caesar and people were killed for not bowing their knee, confessing Caesar as Lord, burning incense to Caesar as Lord. He's saying, no, 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 honor Honor your elected officials, right? Honor your governmental officials. Don't fear them. You don't even have to love them. Honor them. Same plane as every human being on the face of this earth. Now listen, as I close, this is what it looks like to be sacred city. We are a church that I'm praying that we would be a church who fears nothing but God, hates nothing but sin, who loves each other fiercely and we're devoted to one another and gives honor to every single person that we meet, every single person in our lives. That's what it means to be a sacred city a people who have been so radically changed by God that we fear nothing and no one but him. We hate nothing but sin and we show honor to every single person because they are made in the image of God. No matter their color, no matter their, their profession, their career, no matter their income, no matter their political affiliation, from children in the womb to those in assisted living facilities. We can live like that like a sacred city within our cities. God will shake the devil's kingdom. God will radically save those in our city who we are on mission to, and that's just one way we are going to accomplish our mission of making disciples, planting churches, and renewing our city. Knowing who we are, our identities in Christ, we're free to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor our president, and honor our elected officials. 
Are you free like that? Are you free like that? Free to be a servant of God. If not, I invite you into it this morning. You don't have to do anything. You have to pray. You have to ask the Father. You say, Father, I, Jesus, God, I see this. I want in on this. Would you bring me in? Would you bring me in? Let me pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your b- word brings life. I pray that we would be a sacred city. We would be a church that honors everyone, that loves our brothers and sisters in Christ deeply. And with self-service, with, with service, uh, um, self-sacrificial service, that all of this would, would flow out of our life because ultimately we fear you above all things. We have awe and worship review, reserved for you and you alone. And Father, would you teach us what it means to honor our president, to honor the emperor as we honor everyone else among us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring new life to people as we, right now as we sit here. For those of us who are already in Christ, if we see areas in our heart right now that we know are not right, that we would confess them to you and we would receive the grace of God once again that washes us clean Father, as we come as Christian family this morning to the table, we come to be fed by you. You've served us so well by sending your son and you're serving us again now by giving us your son into our hands to remind us no matter how dirty we are, no matter how sinful we are, no matter how many mistakes we've made, no matter how discombobulated and disconnected our inner life is from our outer life, Christ is here. And in one sense, a reminder that our true life is hidden in Christ, in God, and you're putting it right here in our hands. We get to take him into ourselves. Christ, the hope of glory, comes inside of us that nothing in this world can shake. We thank you for this gift. Pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.